Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey let the new age of enlightenment begin what is at stake is more than one small country it is a big idea a new world order it's no longer a theory what i'm about to say is fact the secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, geopolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Greetings, oddities. Hello. Welcome to another oddcast featuring me, your odd man out. I want to thank you so much for having the patience and taking the time to listen to my show. It's been a while and I haven't been getting shows out like I'd like to because of the holidays and then a bunch of other unforeseen circumstances that have been happening lately in my life. But that doesn't mean I haven't been studying in between those circumstances and really trying to learn. And what I've learned, I've been preparing and making notes and I will be sharing some of that information in this show and shows coming up in the near future, Lord willing. This one is going to be a continuance of the Those We Don't Speak Of series, kind of going into slightly different territory, but it's still very much connected. And here at The Oddcast, we believe in history, not hate, and we've talked about this numerous times. This subject, the Those We Don't Speak Of subject, should not be so controversial. It should not be, it should not be taboo to talk about real history. And a lot of this history, though, is not mainstream history. It's been suppressed. It's been hidden. A lot of these books that we read from are hard to find because the publishers will not keep publishing those books or they've been independent publishers anyway because they couldn't get the big publishing houses to publish these books. And this show is no different. So I urge you to check out the show notes, check out the books. I'm going to be listing Several books, even though we may not talk about all of them, but they are books pertaining to this issue that we'll be going over, and I think they will really help you if you're a book reader and you're interested in further study. I really urge you to do that. I urge you to start your own podcast and talk about these things because it's very important that we get the truth out and we keep communicating because there are very powerful 
entities behind the scenes that want to keep information in a little bubble, only have approved history, approved educational material and things like that. And I know that most of you that are listening to this are well aware of that. But I think you should look at also one of the things I've been noticing too as I continue this dive on history and conspiracy and especially those we don't speak of, that many members of those we don't speak of have been historians and are mainstream historians. So that's something to think about and possibly remember when you hear shows like you're going to hear today where a lot of the information is not well known because people don't have the guts to speak out because they don't want their careers to be ruined. And that's understandable to a degree. But if you're really out there searching for truth, you'll find a way to try and get it out and make it happen. And that's really all that I'm trying to do. One thing I've noticed recently is my social media has really, really, uh, well, the interaction, I'd say, on my social media accounts has been really, really low, an all-time low. And I'm certain it's because I talk about certain things, like those we don't speak of mainly, that a lot of powerful people don't want to get out. And so I think that uh, if you are on social media and you follow me, look for me, share the show, share the links, different things like that. It really helps because I think we're going to see more and more of this censorship as we go. And I know I've talked about that before, but I think we're seeing it ramped up right now. So it's modern day book burnings. Links are disappearing. Books are disappearing off of Amazon.com and they're getting harder and harder to find. Articles are going away. And so we are seeing an assault on free speech, freedom of the press. It's all supposed to be these approved stories and these agents who are GovCorp agents. And we know that the press has been in the back pocket of rich industrialists and bankers and different people like that for a very long time. And I think we can just look to who owns a lot of these bigger companies, these bigger news companies, whether they be TV shows, newspapers, uh, you know, news stations, whatever it might be. So anyway, I'll stop blathering on and I want to get right into our subject, which is something that gets hardly any, any coverage whatsoever. And that is what happened directly after World War II. We hear about World War II all the time. I've said this before, but a new book is coming out, it seems like, every six, eight months or so. A new movie every couple of years about Hitler or the Reich or World War II. You go to a bookstore. I go to bookstores all the time. Anytime I'm out in another town that I don't know about or a town that I do know about that I visit and I try and hit all the bookstores I can while I'm there, which I do frequently, and it's always this huge section of WW2 books. And then you think about the Bolshevik Revolution. You think about all of socialism and communism, the Soviets, the Cold War, Mao, all that was going on with the Cold War, basically, in communism. One or two tiny little cubbies, usually with a couple of books in them, if at all. So there is a real move to keep World War II in the news. You look back to Norman Finkelstein's book, The Holocaust Industry. 
So there was a budding industry that was created during World War II and after the Holocaust that continues today to make millions and millions of dollars and all of what happened under the Bolshevik Revolution and the Cold War and socialism and communism has been swept under the rug for the most part and you don't even get much of it in school. But boy, they peddle a lot of stuff in school like, well, the Diary of Anne Frank, which, Lord willing, I'll be doing an episode on in the coming months that really shows that perhaps that diary was a big farce written by her dad and another man. But I know that sounds crazy, but if you look into it, there's a lot of information that does not add up in those books. And I say books because there's numerous versions of those books, okay? That's one thing that we don't know. But anyway, I don't want to get into all that. I'm going to get sidetracked. I want to get into the horrible things, really, that happened to the German people and even the German soldiers directly after World War II. Now, you have to remember that the Russians rolled in there, the Soviets, and they were relentless. But it wasn't just the Russians by any means, And you're going to see that there were also French and American camps, death camps. And things that were going on in those death camps were unbelievable. And so we're going to get into that and we're going to get into some more stuff. So sit tight, hold on, get your pen and paper out. And please, at the end of this, if you enjoyed this at all, I urge you to share this with people, tell people about it. Because we are up against such an information machine. It's unbelievable. And it's on the left and the right. You know, it's, it's, this kind of information, they don't want it to get out. And if you follow me on social media, you know that my perspective is that the left and the right are all about protecting and emboldening the empire. At the end of the day, the Hannity's and the Maddow's, they have the same goal, and that is to protect and strengthen the empire. So that's what we're up against. So let's get right to it. We're going to go back down the rabbit hole right after World War II, far beyond the mainstream. So here we go. This is all that's interesting.com, the dark secret of America's WW2 German death camps. I just ran into this article maybe six months ago or so. This is from 2017. It's written by Richard Stockton. Very interesting part of history that I wasn't aware of. At the end of World War II, the U.S. opened camps of its own where perhaps a million German prisoners died in secret. Every school child knows that the German side in World War II falsely imprisoned millions of non-combatants in a constellation of concentration camps scattered across the Nazi sphere of influence in Europe. Conditions in these camps were inhumane, to say the least, fraught with starvation, disease, and deliberate murder-stalking every inmate for the months or years they spent interned. What has largely escaped the victors' history books, however, is that another program of internment and mass murder was put together at the end of the war by Allied forces, who took in millions of German prisoners in the summer of 1945 and deliberately starved as many as one in four of them to death, according to the highest estimates. 
The story of the Rhine Weisenlager, or the Rhine Camps, was then covered up and obfuscated by professional historians for decades after the war, while the survivors grew old and the prisoner's records were destroyed. It's got some pictures here. I'd suggest you check this out. In the spring of 1945, the handwriting was on the wall for Germany. Millions of Allied troops poured into the Rhineland from the west, while the German SS and the Wehrmacht forces staged desperate last-stand actions in Vienna and Berlin to slow the Soviet Red Army's advance in the east. During this collapse, as German General Jodl stalled the ceasefire negotiations to buy time, and as many as three million German soldiers disengaged from the Eastern Front and trekked across Germany to surrender to American or British troops, whom they hoped would be less vengeful than the triumphant Soviets. The German influx quickly grew so large that the British stopped accepting prisoners, citing logistical problems. Sensing that the Germans were turning themselves in en masse simply to delay an official, inevitable total German surrender, U.S. General Eisenhower then threatened to order his troops to shoot the surrendering German soldiers on sight, which forced Jodl to formally surrender on May 8th. The prisoners kept streaming in, however, and they all needed to be processed before the U.S. Army decided their fate. The Army then hit on a solution for coping with the large numbers of undesirable people that was similar to the one that the Germans had used in Poland. Commandeer large stretches of farmland and wrap barbed wire around the prisoners until something could be sorted out. Dozens of large holding camps thus sprang up in western Germany during the late spring of 1945, and by early summer, German prisoners of war, still wearing their worn-out uniforms, began to fill them. Army officers skimmed off suspicious-looking prisoners, such as SS personnel and men with blood group tattoos on their arms, often a sign of SS membership, and sent them to intelligence officers and war crimes investigators for special scrutiny. Meanwhile, officers allowed rank-and-file members of the Wehrmacht, Luftwaffe, and the Kriegsmarine to simply pick a spot on the ground and sit down until somebody up the chain decided they could go home, or so they thought. The Geneva Convention, and this is key to understand here, the Geneva Convention and the 1907 Hague Convention strictly regulate the treatment of wartime prisoners. Captured enemy soldiers cannot be tortured or executed, if they were wearing their country's uniform when caught. They cannot be put on display or publicly humiliated, nor can they be overworked or punished for no reason. The conventions are stringent about their provisions. Every single POW must be fed and housed up to a standard equal to what their guards get, for example. And if it is impractical to heat the prisoner's barracks, for instance, the convention's rules say that the camp personnel should not have heated barracks either. Almost uniquely for WW2 powers, the American Army took these rules seriously, and even at one POW camp made its own guards sleep in bedrolls on the ground for the three days it took to build prisoner barracks, though their cabins were already furnished. This American reputation for fairness drew millions of defeated Germans to the Western Front in the first place and probably shortened the war somewhat as the fighting man chose captivity over suicide in battle. What none of the surrendering Germans knew was that General Eisenhower, in consultation with British Prime Minister Winston Churchill and President Franklin Roosevelt in 1943, 
had already decided to use the inevitable German weakness following defeat to permanently cripple that country's ability to wage war. As early as 1943, at the Tehran Conference, Roosevelt and Stalin had famously toasted to the shooting of 50,000 German officers after the war. They may or may not have been serious, but early in 1944, Eisenhower appointed a special assistant named Everett Hughes to handle the details of the surrender. That summer, a post-war plan devised by Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau, Jr., was initiated and presumably approved by both Roosevelt and Churchill. We know that, uh, of course, Morgenthau was a staunch Zionist. But the Morgenthau plan, as it came to be known, was beyond punitive. Germany was to be divided into occupation zones, its industry destroyed, crushing reparations imposed, and large sections of its population forcibly resettled to wipe out the German capacity for war once and for all. It was, by modern standards, practically a blueprint for national genocide insofar as millions of Germans would have to starve or relocate to make it work. Everett Hughes was all in favor of the Morgenthau Plan, but after the PR disaster that followed the October release of some of the details, he was cautious. On November 4th, Hughes sent a memo to Eisenhower urging him to classify details of the prisoners' rations as top secret. Eisenhower agreed. The reason for Hughes' interest in rations lies in the legal distinction he and others on Eisenhower's staff had made. Surrendered Germans, they decided, would not be classified as POWs, but under a new and totally made-up designation of Disarmed Enemy Forces, or DEFs. As DEFs, rather than POWs, the men would be entitled to none of the Geneva Convention's protections. The American forces would not even be obliged to feed their captives, and they could legally, so went the argument, bar the Red Cross from inspecting their Rhein-Weisenlager camps or sending relief aid. Under their new legal status, the defeated German soldiers would almost literally become unpersons, a vulnerable position compounded by the fact that after the surviving German statesmen were arrested in Flensburg, German veterans didn't even have a government to advocate for them anymore. They were perfectly helpless and totally at the mercy of the U.S. Army. There is only one reason to strip prisoners of war of the legal status that protects them from mistreatment, and that is to mistreat them. According to a 1989 book on the subject, Other Losses, by Canadian writer James Back, at least 800,000 and quite literally over a million prisoners lost their lives in American-operated Rhein-Weisenlager camps during the summer and fall of 1945. Conditions in the Rhein-Weisenlager camps, which were later reviewed by the Surgeon General's office, resembled Andersonville Prison in 1864. Even Stephen Ambrose, the world-famous historian and sometimes employee of the Eisenhower estate, who was hired by the late president's family to investigate the book's charges, admitted in 1991 in a New York Times article, There was, quote, There was widespread mistreatment of German prisoners in the spring and summer of 1945. Men were beaten, denied water, forced to live in open camps without shelter, given inadequate food rations and inadequate medical care. 
Their mail was withheld, and in some cases, prisoners made a soup of water and grass in order to deal with their hunger. Men did die needlessly and inexcusably. The unpleasant details Ambrose would admit about the Rhein-Weisenlager camps barely scratch the surface. Allied forces would usually strip search and interrogate men designated as deafs before admitting them to the camps. Much of the time, the American or British officers conducting the interrogations staged them to make the German, who was usually tired and hungry, deprived of sleep and wholly ignorant of the American and British justice systems, think he was on trial for his life and could only save himself or his family by confessing to whatever crimes he was being accused of. Officials marched the vast majority into barbed wire enclosures and abandoned them. Prisoners rarely received food or water, let alone fresh clothes, and shelter was whatever size hole they could dig with their hands. Men who approached the perimeter wire to beg for provisions ran the risk of being shot as attempted escapees, but those who didn't could easily starve to death or die of typhus, cholera, and other illnesses endemic to the Rhein-Weisenlager camps. Both the International Committee of the Red Cross and the German civilians, short on food themselves, sent what aid they could. Still, camp officials flatly refused the ICRC entry to the camps and told them the deaths had plenty of food without their help. You're not going to learn this in school, my friends. You're not going to learn this in our common core system. Nobody seems to know what happened to the civilian food parcels, Though the guards never reported food shortages themselves, and it's possible some parcels were distributed to French civilians near the border. The men in the camps got nothing, and soon they began to die. No known existing records show exactly how many German veterans died in the Rhine-Weisenlager camps. The army claimed after the war that it was impossible to track millions of prisoners under those conditions, and thus said that no detailed paperwork was even attempted. Later revelations showed that, in fact, the army did keep files on the men, but that around 8 million documents were destroyed after the camps closed. The closest researchers can get is in the other losses column of the army's records, showing discrepancies in the weekly prisoner count of sometimes tens of thousands of men who vanished from one head count to the next. So I'd like to read the foreword to James Back's book that we mentioned in the article, Other Losses. Over most of the Western Front in late April 1945, the thunder of artillery had been replaced by the shuffling of millions of pairs of boots as columns of disarmed German soldiers marched wearily towards Allied barbed wire enclosures. Scattered enemy detachments fired a few volleys before fading into the countryside and eventual capture by Allied soldiers. The mass surrenders in the West contrasted markedly with the final weeks on the Eastern Front, where surviving Wehrmacht units still fought the advancing Red Army to enable as many of their comrades as possible to evade capture by the Russians. This was the final strategy of the German High Command, then under Grand Admiral Donitz, who had been designated commander-in-chief by Adolf Hitler following the Reich Marshal Goering's surrender to the West. From the German point of view, this strategy delivered millions of German soldiers to what they believed would be the more merciful hands of the Western Allies under Supreme Military Commander General Dwight Eisenhower. However, given General Eisenhower's fierce and obsessive hatred not only of the Nazi regime, but indeed of all things German, 
This belief was at best a desperate gamble. More than 5 million German soldiers in the American and French zones were crowded into barbed wire cages, many of them literally shoulder to shoulder. The ground beneath them soon became a quagmire of filth and disease. Open to the weather, lacking even primitive sanitary facilities, undurfed, the prisoners soon began dying of starvation and disease. Starting in April 1945, the United States Army and the French Army casually annihilated about one million men, most of them in American camps. Not since the horrors of the Confederate-administered prison at Andersonville during the American Civil War had such cruelties taken place under American military control. For more than four decades, this unprecedented tragedy lay hidden in Allied archives. How at last did this enormous war crime come to light? The first clues were uncovered in 1986 by the author James Back and his assistant, researching a book about Raoul Laportois, a French resistance hero who had saved about 1,600 refugees from the Nazis, they interviewed a former German soldier who had become a friend of Le Portois in 1946. Le Portois had taken this man, Hans Goertz, and one other out of a French prison camp in 1946 to give them work as tailors in his chain of stores. Goertz declared that Le Portois saved my life because 25% of the men in that camp died in one month. What had they died of? Starvation, dysentery, and disease. Checking as far as possible the records of the camps where Goertz had been confined, Back found that it had been one of a group of three in a system of 1,600, all equally bad, according to the ICRC reports in the French Army's archives at Vincennes, Paris. Soon they came upon the first hard evidence of mass deaths in U.S.-controlled camps. Now, this evidence was found in Army reports under the bland heading, Other Losses. The terrible significance of this term was soon explained to back by Colonel Phillips S. Laubin, a former chief of the German affairs branch of Schaeff, S-H-A-E-F. In the spring of 1987, Mr. Back and I met in Washington. Over the following months, we worked together in the National Archive and in the George C. Marshall Foundation in Lexington, Virginia, piecing together the evidence we uncovered. The plans made at the highest levels of the U.S. and British government in 1944 expressed a determination to destroy Germany as a world power once and for all by reducing her peasant economy, although this would mean the starvation of millions of civilians. Up until now, historians have agreed that the Allied leaders soon canceled their destructive plans because of public resistance. Eisenhower's hatred passed through the lens of compliant military bureaucracies, Eisenhower's hatred, passed through the lens of a compliant military bureaucracy, produced the horror of death camps unequaled by anything in American military history. In the face of the catastrophic consequences of this hatred, the casual indifference expressed by the SHAEF officers is the most painful aspect of the U.S. Army's involvement. Nothing was further from the intent of the great majority of Americans in 1945 than to kill off so many unarmed Germans after the war. Some idea of the magnitude of this horror can be gained when it is realized that these deaths exceed by far all those incurred by the German army in the West between June 1941 and April 1945. In the narrative that follows, the veil is drawn from this tragedy.
That was Dr. Ernest F. Fisher, Jr., Colonel, Army of the United States, retired. Redemption Through Sin, the author says, In his book, Crimes and Mercies, James Back describes how he confronted New York Times reporter Drew Middleton with the evidence that after the war, the U.S. starved to death over one million German POWs. Back writes, What Middleton told me, basically, was that yes, He had lied in 1945, and no, it did not matter to him or the New York Times if I exposed this. Middleton's sense of security, his sense of the New York Times' power, took my breath away. But worse than that, Middleton did not care about this atrocity. The New York Times witnessed it, then denied that it happened, and has gone on denying it into the 1990s. Back estimates that during the Allied occupation of 1946 to 1950, an additional 8 to 12 million German soldiers were deliberately starved to death. The war did not end in 1945. For five additional years, Germany suffered physical and psychic trauma unparalleled in history. Red Army soldiers raped up to 2 million German women during the last six months of the Second World War and around 100,000 of them in Berlin. They also raped Russian women released from the German labor camps. We live in a feminist era. Have you seen any movies about this, he asks? Of course not. Of course not. I want to go to another book that is about the same era, but not about the Rhine Weisenlager camps. I ran into a video that led me to this book. It's called An Eye for an Eye. And this is by another author named John Sack. And he had been a veteran author, written several books. Eye for an Eye, the untold story of the Jewish revenge against Germans in 1945. I'm going to give you the book review on thrift books. Not for 60 years has a book been so brutally and in the end unsuccessfully, but I would say actually successfully because who knows about this, suppressed as eye for an eye. One major newspaper, one major magazine, and three major publishers paid 40000 for it, but were scared off. One printed 6,000 books, then pulped them. Two dozen publishers read Eye for an Eye and praised it. Shocking, startling, astonishing, mesmerizing, extraordinary, they wrote to the author John Sack. I was riveted. I was bowled over. I love it, they wrote, but all two dozen rejected it. Finally, Basic Books published Eye for an Eye. It sparked a furious controversy, said Newsweek. It became a bestseller in Europe, but was so shunned in America that it also became, in the words of New York Magazine, the book they dare not review. Since then, both 60 Minutes and the New York Times have corroborated what Sack wrote, that at the end of World War II, thousands of Jews sought revenge for the Holocaust. They set up 1,255 concentration camps for German civilians, German men, women, and children, and babies. They were beat, whipped, tortured, and murdered. I'm living in Hollywood. I'm a writer, and I have a meeting at Paramount. And the secretary there, she's reading something that I wrote about the Billionaire Boys Club. And she tells me I like it. It reminds me of my family. I say, the Billionaire Boys Club, your your family? And the secretary says, yes, all those murders. My mother, Lola, was at Auschwitz. I say, oh, 
Secretary says, and after that, my mother commanded a prison full of Nazis. I say, what? It's a few days later, Hollywood, the Moussache Cafe, spinach crepe. I'm having spinach crepe. I'm having dinner with Lola. Elegant woman, coral lipstick, black eyeliner that goes like this, you know, like on a femme fatale. She speaks five languages fluently. She's 66 years old. And Lola starts telling me her story. She tells me, she tells me that at the end of World War II, she commanded a prison in Gleiwitz, Germany. She says the inmates were German soldiers, but she says some were Nazis, even SS, pretending to be German soldiers. Now, it's 1989, Poland is still communist, but I get into Lola's prison, into the prisoner's cell. I tell them, Jen Dobre, good morning, I'm visiting. I see the prison records. Remember when, according to Lola, she went to the Polish government and said, I want revenge, okay. I find Lola's application in Lola's own handwriting. She writes, I want to cooperate against our German oppressors. I find the official document appointing her commandant in Gleiwitz. And after that, I go to Germany 11 more times, to Poland three more times, to France, Austria, Italy, Canada, all around the United States. I talk to 200 people in, <laughs> with interpreters, in Polish and Russian, Danish and Swedish, German and Dutch, French and Spanish, Yiddish and Hebrew. I left out English. I get 300 hours of tape-recorded interviews, and I see thousands of documents. And what do I learn? Well, Lola was telling the truth. She was the commandant in Gleiwitz, and she was taking revenge. She slapped the Germans around. And just as she said, she stopped. I remember one day in 1989, I was having lunch with one of her guards at the Hotel Lejeune, reading Wiener Schnitzel. And out of the blue, the man says, you know, Lola stopped. She told us, stop. She said, we're going to show the Germans we're not like them. So Lola was telling the truth, but, but, she wasn't telling the whole truth. Lola had told me the people in her prison were German soldiers, and yeah, plenty of them were. They were German soldiers working as painters, as carpenters. But there were 1,000 other prisoners there, and they were German civilians, German men, German women, German children. One prisoner was a 14-year-old boy. He had been out in Gleivitz wearing his Boy Scout pants. Someone cried out, you're wearing black pants, you're a fascist. And the man chased the boy and tackled him at the Church of St. Peter and Paul and took him to Lola's prison. The boy was completely innocent. So were most of the people in Lola's prison. They weren't Gestapo, they weren't SS, they weren't even Nazis. Of 1,000 prisoners in Lola's prison, 20, just 20, were ever even accused of it, but the Germans in Lola's prison were slapped and whipped. And I'm sorry to have to say it, but they were tortured. The Boy Scout, the guards poured gasoline on his curly black hair and set it on fire. The boy went insane. 
The men, they were beaten with a tutschläger, a beater to death. It's a long steel spring, and at the end is a big lead ball, and you use it like a racquetball racket. Your arm, your wrist, and your wrist and the spring, they deliver a triple hit to a German's face. Now, Lola didn't tell me, but the Germans in her prison were dying. I found their death certificates in Gleibert City Hall. One of Lola's guards told me, yeah, the Germans would die. He told me, I put the bodies on a horse-drawn cart. I'd cover them with potato peels so no one would see. I'd ride to the outskirts. And after I threw the potato peels out, I'd take the Germans to the Catholic cemetery to the mass grave. We all know about Auschwitz. But I have to tell you, the Germans in Lola's prison were worse off than Lola, than Lola, than Lola was at Auschwitz. Again, keep in mind that author John Sack was a veteran journalist and a Jew himself. I'm going to read you the inside and back cover of this book, Eye for an Eye. The worst thing that happened to some of the Holocaust survivors was that they became like Nazis. How and why, and why they stopped, is the subject of this book. It is a story of Jewish revenge and Jewish redemption. Now, I should mention that the majority of the book is not even about this, and it actually shows Jews in a positive light as being these type of people who persevere through all kinds of hardships. But because he put this part that they did in the book, they went for him. I'll go on. An Eye for an Eye is a riveting account of the appalling events that accompanied the end of World War II. In 1945, the Soviet Union, which occupied Poland and parts of Germany, a region inhabited by 10 million German civilians, established the Office of State Security and deliberately recruited survivors of the Holocaust to carry out a policy of denazification. The office entered German homes and rounded up German men, women, and children. 99% of them non-combatant, innocent civilians, and took them to cellars, prisons, and 1,255 concentration camps where inmates subsisted on starvation rations, where typhus ran rampant, and where torture was commonplace. In this brief period, between 60,000 and 80,000 Germans died in the office's custody. This book tells the story of what drove people who had been through unimaginable suffering to turn around and inflict the same on others. John Sack focuses on people like Lola, a young woman who became a commandant of a prison, determined to avenge the death of her mother, brother, and sister, and one-year-old baby. Pinek, Lola's gentle childhood friend, who after the war became head of security for all of Silesia, but never saw what was going on in his jurisdiction and bitter because it had ignored Auschwitz, refused to allow the Red Cross to come and look, and Shlomo, a commandant who bragged that what the Germans couldn't do in five years at Auschwitz, I've done in five months at the Schweintokowalitz. In fact, his arithmetic was faulty. The Germans at Auschwitz killed just as many people in five short hours. Nothing has ever been written about this. To unearth the story, the author spent seven years doing research and conducting interviews in Poland, Germany, Israel, and the United States. 
65 pages of notes and sources testify to the accuracy of the reporting. And on the back, he has an endorsement from a professor, Antony Polonsky, professor of East European Jewish history. I read this extremely gripping and compelling account of the appalling events which accompanied the end of the war and the expulsion of the Germans from what was to become Western Poland in one go. It was impossible to put down. The topic of Jewish participants in these acts of oppression is controversial, but, in my view, only two questions need be raised. The first concerns the motivation of the author, and here I am convinced that Mr. Sack has tried, as he himself writes, to tell something more than the story of Jewish revenge, the story of Jewish redemption. The second is whether the story is true and what it is based on. Here, too, I am satisfied that the author is a serious researcher. The book is, in fact, a major contribution to our understanding, and I certainly recommend the publication. Lola at Auschwitz wasn't locked up in a room night and day. She wasn't tortured night after night. She herself had told me, thank God, nobody tried to rape us. The Germans weren't allowed to. But all of that happened to German girls at Lola's prison in Gleibitz. Now, the Office of State Security was a Polish government organization. The lower ranks were Polish Catholics, but most of the leaders were Polish Jews. The chief of the, of the office in Warsaw was a Jew. When I was in Poland, he wasn't alive, but I met some of his family. The department directors, or all or almost all of them were Jews. In the province where Lola was, Silesia, in Silesia, the director of the Office of State Security was a Jew. I met him in Copenhagen, a little bald-headed man. Didn't know that I'd be a little bald-headed man 10 years later. <laughs> the director of prisons was a Jew. I met his whole family. The secretary of state security was a Jew. I met him time and again at his home in New Jersey. And in Silesia in 1945, three-fourths of the officers, now not the GIs, not the guards, but the lieutenants, the captains, the officers, one-fourth of them were Catholics and three-fourths were Jews. I interviewed 24. And I learned that the Office of State Security ran 227 prisons like Lola's, prisons for German civilians. This one camp, I found the death certificates for 1,583 Germans. In other camps, other prisons, thousands of German civilians died. German men, women, children, babies. At one camp, there was a barrack, barracks for 50 babies. They were in cribs, but the camp doctor, he was a Jew, he was from Auschwitz, Dr. Sidorowski, he didn't heat the barracks, he didn't give the babies milk, he gave them soup, and 48 of the 50 babies died. All in all, 60,000 to 80,000 Germans died. Now, some were killed by Jews, some by Catholics, many by typhus, dysentery, starvation, but all 60,000 to 80,000 died in the custody of the Office of State Security and it all had been covered up for almost 50 years. Jews who did it didn't talk about it. For example, the chief of police in Breslau, Germany, 
1945 was a Jew. He wrote a book about the Holocaust, and at the end of the book he says, what he says about being chief of police in Breslau is, quote, we move westward to Breslau and from there to Prague. That's it. Jewish reporters. Jewish reporters who knew about it didn't write about it. There's a working reporter right now in New York City. He was in Poland right after World War II. He tells me, whatever, whatever the Germans tell you, believe me, it's true. But he himself never wrote about it. The truth was covered up and was still being covered up. In 1989, I go to Jerusalem to Yad Vashem. As you know, they have 50 million documents there about the Holocaust. And I asked them, well, what do you have on the uh, Office of State Security? They have nothing. I asked, well, what do you have about Jews in the Office of State Security? Nothing. I said, well, there were Jewish commandants, Jewish directors, Jewish, and they say, the chairman of Yad Vashem says, it sounds rather imaginary, and the director of archives says to me, impossible, impossible, denial, denial. That's what the Jews in the Office of State Security have taught us. That's what I tried to write, what I did write, in an eye for an eye. The very first words of the dedication for all who died and for all who, because of this story, might live. In the book, Sachs says that the properties of all the Germans were taken, including everything from the clothes to the land. They had a saying when they went to take the Germans as prisoners, allows Maine everything's mine. There's horrific stories of torture of the most gruesome kind, also rape, starvation, and suffering from beatings, diseases, and inhuman living conditions. There's instances of attack dogs chewing off the genitals of helpless prisoners. All right, guys, this concludes part one. This episode is going to have a part two, and we're going to get really into the darker parts of what happened from both other losses, and Eye for an Eye, and another book called After the Reich. It's just unbelievable, this history that's been lost that hardly anyone knows about, and no one, or nearly no one, has the balls to actually put it out there and talk about it in the correct way that they should. So with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and thank my wonderful patrons. I want to thank Cole. I want to thank Ashley. I want to thank that crazy bread man for being a covert co-conspirator. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Ruckus, from the Daily Ruckus on alternatecurrentradio.com. Thank you, Ruckus, for being a producer of the show. And I just want you guys to know that the upper two levels, the producer level and the covert co-conspirator level, I'm doing an odd book club, and I'm behind on that really badly. But I have finished the last episode of the first series on the occult technology of power, and I'm going to be uploading that tomorrow night. So you'll have that, and then I'm going to be starting on Machiavelli's The Prince because I think it's so pertinent right now. And then eventually, I think after that, we'll go on to Francis Bacon's The New Atlantis. So I think those books are very important and still have a lot of influence on the world that we see today. So thank you, Ruckus. Thank you, No Evil Shall Fear. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Mark, from Housatonic Live. Get over there and check out Mark's work on YouTube and other channels. Thank you, James. Thank you, Bill, for being a longtime producer of the show. Thank you, John Brisson, of We've Read the Documents. 
Check out John on Twitter at We've Read. Thank you to the Mighty Kilowatt. Thank you, Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, David. And thank you, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Also, check out all of Jack's work on YouTube and Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence on all your fine podcasting platforms. Also, want to thank AlternateCurrentRadio.com, my podcasting family. Get over there and check out all their talk and music shows. Sometimes you just want to jam and get all this crazy political stuff out of your mind. And so they provide that as well as all the political information you could ever want to know. Uh, also, I want to thank FringeRadioNetwork.com for carrying the Oddcast. They've got a ton of good shows on that website as well. I look forward to bringing you many more shows in the future, Lord willing. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys. Dream with me of a shining gleam of daylight, of a darkened glimpse of midnight, of a chance to survive. Scream with me. When the reaper comes a calling, when the cold rain is falling, when a youth has passed us by, evil may rip us to pieces while we sleep, cancer may rob us of our lives, sickness may cause our hearts not to beat, but on going. Our souls will survive Ongoing Our souls will survive Dream with me Of a peace that lasts forever Of a love to leave me never Of a sacred paradise Scream with me In the hopeless heart of terror When escape not in your favor when it's our turn tonight. Evil may rip us to pieces while we sleep. Cancer may rob us of our lives. Sickness may cause our hearts not to beat, but on go.